Lord, you are a rock, you are a fortress, you're our deliverer, and you're the one to whom we turn. Forgive us for not turning to you in all matters of life and only in those times where we, we are particularly sensitive to our frailties and insecurities. But Lord, we, we ask that um, our hearts would be renewed in a sense of recognizing our utter dependence upon you. I'm thinking particularly of our sister Chastity and brother Stephen as they are experiencing great awareness right now of their dependence upon you. We pray that, that their hearts would be filled with courage and comfort from the Holy Spirit, that there would be a sense of your presence and a peace that passes all human comprehension in these moments. And Father, as we uh, desire, the elders desire our church to be a praying church, I pray that we would all take seriously the moment-by-moment life that we live and remember that we can take all things to you in prayer. We thank you that we are a part of a sister organization, a brotherhood, a sisterhood of churches. These are all people for whom you have died and you care greatly for, and we ask that their personal holiness would continue until the day of your return. Thank you for Les Lofquist, who has been a part of this ministry for many years as an executive director. I pray, Father, that you would be with Richard Vargas as he begins the process of um, transition to a new position. Thank you for him. Thank you for all of our directors and our staff in the office who take care of ministry details and even sending out little notices like this that, that this is a week of focused prayer. Thank you for them. Give them strength and stamina. Lord, may our, may our organization, among other organizations, lift high the name of Jesus. May we do all things for the glory of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the final lap now in Paul's dealing of the persistent problem in Corinth of strife, divisiveness, boasting, pride. All of these are wrong behaviors. Paul has been teaching us they're, they're learned behaviors that come from a wrong understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can… Oh, I'm sorry. Kids, you may be dismissed. Just, you know what to do. Just do it. You go out the back, yes, today. No, this, this front. Sorry about that. I just get into a pew, like a runner looking for the end, of the end goal here. But Paul's in the final lap. He's, he's focused. He's, he's, he's targeted. He's coming in, and he's, he's not wanting the Corinthians to become sidelined. Sidelined when they, they refocus the cross to themselves. 
When we value self-promotion and our self-sufficiency, what we're doing is we're embracing a wisdom from the world, and we're becoming weak when we could otherwise have great strength and power and true wisdom that comes from looking at the cross. And so, the gospel encourages us to appropriate the humility of the cross and become very self-forgetful. That's true wisdom. That's real power. And so, I said, he's in the final lap around the track here, and he, in these last two paragraphs, there's two paragraphs of thought here that was read earlier in the service, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 through 21. The first paragraph, Paul becomes very, very sarcastic. And then the second paragraph, he becomes very, very tender. He's strong and then he's soft, but his idea is very clear throughout these two paragraphs. We need to follow the crucified Christ and not the world. If we're following Jesus, we take the cross as our very own. We leave the wisdom of the world. And so, what this does, if we follow the crucified Christ, in the first paragraph, there's an emphasis of a reorientation. This is kind of his last thought here on how the cross and a crucified Christ changes our thinking. And then the last paragraph, it's emphasis is more on the behaviors. The cross will affect our thinking, and then our behaviors will change. Now, as you read through this, you're probably going to see, well, a little bit of overlap and and such, but but there's major emphases in each paragraph of how if we follow the crucified Christ and not the world, then it's going to change our thinking, and then it will change our behaviors. So, let's look at these pieces one at a time here, and the first is in verses 18 to 13. 8 to 13, Paul's emphasis is if we follow a crucified Christ, and it's going to change our thinking. And as I said, Paul is very, very sarcastic here. He's dressing, addressing people who are very full of themselves, people who have become very arrogant. They've forgotten that if it were not for the grace of God, they would have been marked for eternal destruction. Furthermore, they're ungrateful for Paul who, who labored among them to bring them to the cross in the first place. They're puffed up. Their ego is inflated. They're judging him and saying, you know, he's, they're wondering if whether he's a legitimate pro, uh, uh, apostle And so, Paul uses like a two-by-four, kind of like a strong solvent, if you will, a strong solvent to break down their pride and its sarcasm. Now, we're not, some of us, accustomed to hearing sarcasm. Some of us like giving out sarcasm, but it's a tool. And so, Paul is doing this in verses 8 through 13. And I've rephrased some of these thoughts, particularly verse 8, to cause us to think about whether or not we're in the same boat as the Corinthians. And in verse 8, Paul becomes very critical of their thinking. 
And I have to ask ourselves this morning, are we able to take criticism as Paul gives it? Look at what he says in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you became kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. See, a person who is had his ego punctured by the cross, is actually able to take criticism and to hear it. You want to test whether or not you're embracing the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of the cross, ask yourself, how well do I take criticism from other people? People who are not inflated in their ego can take take criticism well. It's like their ego just just works. It's like the finger or the toe. It's like the arm or the leg. It's just there. You don't think about it. It's something that just is. But if you're particularly puffed up, if someone begins to tweak you just a little bit, a little criticism about what you're doing or how you're doing it, you're going to like flare up. person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value, actually, in what other people think of them. A thin-skinned person is devastated because they're filled with pride. Now, the answer in this is not actually to get thick-skinned, like you don't care what people think about you. The answer is actually to think less of yourself and see criticism as an opportunity to change and to grow. Truth is, the more we get to understand the gospel and what it's really saying about us, that at our heart we are, dis- we are filled with sin, the more we really should desire to change. Now, Paul is applying criticism, and it's He's being very critical here of their inflated view of themselves because they're acting as if they've arrived in the kingdom already. It's like they're already in it. Paul is on the outside still. And so what he's doing here, he's mocking them. He's like saying, already you have all you want? It's kind of like, it's like little Billy's got all the milk he needs. Now he just needs to be burped. You know, you're like so wealthy, you use $100 bills to light your cigar. You're just like that filthy wealthy. Without us, you have become kings. They're, they're elite Christians. And Paul's, you know, the scummy Christian. See, the Corinthians had such an inflated view of themselves, they had drunk so deeply of the Spirit that they had been enriched with all these spiritual gifts that they had no need of a pastor or an elder or an apostle for that matter. And then they had started to think of themselves as aloof, as in, you know, Paul, he's not my apostle. Oh, he's not my pastor. He's not my elder. It was as if they had already arrived in the kingdom and they were reigning. In fact, the latter part of verse 8, Paul's saying, he says, I wish that you actually were reigning because that would mean then I'm reigning with you. The kingdom would be here. 
And sadly, this is an area where Christians have had a lot of confusion through the years. When we come to the cross, there is a sense in which we enter into the kingdom now, but it is still not yet. There is a kingdom to come with realities that have just begun now, which will find ultimate fulfillment when Christ returns. That's something that's sometimes hard for us to grasp. And if we're not careful, we can kind of think about our world as if it's finished, as if we've arrived, that the kingdom has happened. Often this happens in cultures where it's very easy to live a Christian life. It's easy for churches to adopt if they've been particularly successful and they have got all kinds of people coming to their services and they have all kinds of fancy programs to think more highly of themselves as if they're, they've done it. It's easy for people within a church to create this mentality that they have arrived. We might not say that, but we act out a different reality. We form cliques. We only associate with people who are good like me. We portray a junior high-ish elitism that is so contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we associate with people maybe that won't criticize us. And in the end, we're simply following ourselves. But if we follow Christ, this begins to change our thinking. We haven't arrived. The kingdom is still to come, and we have to be busy about the business of the king. Our ego will not hurt when someone points out to us that we have an area in which we need to grow. Have we already arrived? Or are we following the world instead of following Christ? Second observation that I have, and I've rephrased this as a question, Paul is he's, he's saying, you know, the, the, you're really following Christ. It's going to change your thinking. It's going to change your thinking about yourself. You'll be able to take criticism, and actually you'll be able to handle hardship. Verses 9 to 10, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we avoiding hardship? Because the kingdom of God is not yet. And what that means is that we are going to suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. There are plenty of ways, I've got to say, there are plenty of ways in which we can suffer for foolishness' sake. I mean, it's possible to make stupid mistakes with your money and suffer for it. That can happen. But Paul here is talking about making decisions for Christ that will negatively affect your lifestyle. It's sad, but we live in a a, a society where we have so much freedom to worship Christ that it's actually become to dominate our thinking. The American dream gives us the illusion that it's possible to live like kings and queens now. Now, the dream is not necessarily wrong, per se. It's, it's actually part of the future coming kingdom of Christ, 
We will one day rule and reign with Him. We'll all have a mansion. But right now, we have responsibilities as Christians that compete with the American dream. We have to be busy about the business of making disciples, of evangelizing, and of doing corporate worship together. Are we willing to suffer hardship? Or has the American dream become our identity and we're ruling right now our own little kingdom? Paul knows that the kingdom has not arrived yet. He's suffering for Christ. In verse 9, he says that he has been made a public spectacle. Look at verse 9. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles at last of all, like the lowest rung of social standing, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. That word spectacle is the word where in the Greek language we get our English word theater from. Theater. And he's saying, look, I am like a condemned person tossed into an arena to be observed by a crowd, to be mocked and enjoy, my my torment is for others' pleasure. It's as if he and the other apostles are like people in the Hunger Games, the world looking on and eating and gorging themselves to death and enjoying the spectacle at his expense. He says that the world and angels and men are looking on. So, where do we fit in this picture? Are we in the arena? Or are we outside the fray? Are we so wise and so strong, so honorable, that we look at the persecuted church in Cambodia as a spectacle? It's easy to read missionary biography. Watch a video about the the five missionaries who were martyred in Ecuador. Send money out to support an orphan. But it is so much harder to make choices which reduce the potential of our pleasure here in America. You can be in the fray of suffering for righteousness' sake if you chose to be. And to suffer for righteousness' sake might mean that you say no to aspects of the American dream. It means saying no to projects or hobbies and community events that draw you away from your Christian responsibilities. Responsibilities of edifying and participating in corporate worship. Now, I'm not talking about employment challenges. We live in a world that's very unique where we we have so much irregularity to our lives, it's hard to be consistent with anything. I understand that. And I'm not talking about vacation travel because, frankly, I have family in other states too. 
But what I'm talking about is, do we run ourselves so ragged chasing the American dream that we are quick to drop non-essentials like worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we avoiding hardship? If we're truly following Christ, it will change our thinking so that we embrace the humility of the cross where we look at ourselves as such that this applies to us too. Do we have so much pride in ourselves that suggests that we're exempt from the personal responsibility to prioritize our worship? Oh, that's just for the elders. That's just for the deacons. It's okay if I miss every once in a while. Are you so wise, so strong, so honorable that you don't need to be with your fellow brother regularly? That's for others. Do you avoid the suffering of saying no to attractive things that this world says is bringing happiness? Or are you afraid of being thought foolish, weak, and disreputable by the people you work with who when they ask you what you did on the weekend, you have nothing to say other than, I had an enjoyable time with my church family on Sunday. What if you can't tell a story about that awesome hike or that color 5K run or the big one that got away? In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. You know, there are brothers and sisters in Myanmar and China who would be killed if they got together, but yet they do it anyway. The question, and I know this is hard, Paul is being deliberately hard here. Are we kings and queens? Are we living, living in a kingdom now? Are our, inflate, are our egos inflated beyond measure? Are we able to take criticism? Who or what are we intimidating? Excuse me. Who or what are we imitating? Verses 11 to 13. So he's, he's, he's looking, he's very, being very critical in verse 8. Verse 9, he's saying, look, you're thinking like you're kings and queens. And so who are you really following? Verse 11 through 13, the question pervades. In verse 11, he says, to this present hour we hunger and thirst. Now he's talking about the apostles. We, at this present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Can you see in these descriptives who Paul is identifying as who he is following? Think for a moment. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are 
you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Did you hear it? Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm hungering. I'm thirsting. I'm, I'm actually underneath of uh, persecution, the kind that Christ is describing. In Luke 9, 58, Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Isaiah 53, for He had no former majesty that we would look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed him not. Paul is showing them that the suffering that he is experiencing is simply an imitation of the crucified Christ. Paul doesn't imagine for one moment that we're all going to necessarily suffer in exactly the same ways as Christ suffered on the cross. That's not what he's saying. But if we are following him, It's going to change our fundamental opinion. Our fundamental opinion about suffering will change because we're truly following Jesus Christ. This is an attitude issue. And it manifests itself in the denial of ourself. And so that there is really no other way to follow Christ. We have to deny ourselves and make the following of Him a high priority if people will turn against us in the workplace, if people will ignore us and not invite us to specific events. Do we follow Christ or do we follow the world? Now, Paul's wanting them to have a right thinking about themselves and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are you following? If you truly are following a crucified Christ, then it's going to change your thinking, and then it's going to change your behavior. Verses 14 to 21, he shifts, and he's not as hard on them now. He becomes more soft. He wants them to follow Christ and nothing else, and he's talking to them this way in this hard way because he loves them. In verse 14, he says, I I do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now, he's changing his tone here. He's not as hard as he was. And he's reminding them that, you know, you might have all kinds of guides. You might even have 10,000 guardians that are kind of like pushing you along closer to where Christ would want you to go, but you're only going to have one Father, the one who introduced you to Jesus Christ. And that's why he's writing to them in this way. He wants to remind them of the things that he taught them when he was with them in person. And so he's encouraging them to be imitators of him in verse 16. Now, that might sound arrogant, but I think the logic of what 
Paul is saying is sometimes lost on us because we don't live in the first century. Paul is saying here, just as first century sons were expected to imitate their fathers, for example, if a father was a baker, it was very likely that the son would come along and learn all the ways of baking and become a baker himself. If the father was a sheep farmer, he would learn everything about sheep and how to graze them, how to lead them to pasture, where to find the best water, how to care for the ticks that get into their their hair. And so he would learn it. He'd become a shepherd as well. And what Paul is doing here is saying, look, it's expected of sons to carry on the family values, the family heritage, the family name. Be imitators of your father. I imitated Christ. Imitate me so that you too may be my children in the gospel. It's not arrogance. He's simply stating how character is passed on. And we learn from watching and imitating and of repetition over and over and over. And what Paul is saying, look, if we follow Christ, then we follow the one who truly matters. And so, if we're following Christ, it's going to change your behavior. Verse 17, he says, that is why I sent Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. My ways in Christ. Now, the Corinthians, and probably a number of here this morning, could probably be able to describe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, what is the gospel? Some of us might quote 1 Corinthians 15, Four, three and four. That Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and after three days he was resurrected. That's the essence of the gospel. But probably a lot of us would have a hard time understanding how this historical truth of what the gospel is has practical effect on how we live. But this historical truth is intended to reshape our lives in behavioral changes. How does the gospel impact aspects of my life? How do we learn the ways of Christ in the world I live? Now, I apologize for using an illustration that would be specific to one, one segment of us here. Please forgive me, it's where I am in life right now. But how does the gospel impact my marriage? I mean, are there principles in the gospel that can provide help for me to change behaviors in my marriage to make it successful for the glory of God? Absolutely. Because you know what? The tendency to promote ourself in marriage is great. It's everywhere. And that's the world's wisdom, though. To take the cross and its wisdom means that I have to actually not promote myself. I have to promote the well-being of the other person. I need to grow in humility that looks like the cross. I mean, the world suggests that if you're feeling great about yourself, then you're going to have a great marriage 
And what happens in that model is, to the extent that you're not being oppressed, I believe it's true, but in that model, the goal of marriage, in that case, in the world model, is self. Whatever makes me successful in my marriage is the end goal. And so, in that case, what's going to happen is either the male partner or the female partner is going to become the dominant partner. I mean, who wears the pants in the family is actually the demonstration of this unhealthy model. How do we apply the cross? It's when both partners bend towards one another in humility. When we really listen and when we really consider that our, then our marriage becomes healthy. Just recently, Abby and I were discussing a matter regarding how we were to use our vacation this year. And at first there was a little tension about it because we had different ideas of how we might use vacation this year. And the conflict wasn't wrong, but how we handle it makes a difference, and how we view ourselves in the moment makes a difference. We both took time to express our thoughts and think through carefully about the consequences of of this vacation plan versus that vacation plan and the finances and all all the kids and everything. And when we considered the alternatives together, took some time, I took some time and I prayed and I thought through carefully, you know, as my role as husband and father, how might I lead in this example of how I can take care of my family? So I made a decision based upon the considerations. And now we're both happy with the decision that was made. Now that doesn't happen all the time. I wish it happened all the time. But as we appropriate the wisdom of the cross, there can be benefit to the relationships, any relationship that we experience in life. You might not be in a married scenario, but you've got employers or bosses, and humility is always the right way forward. You might have a a locker buddy next to you in the hallway at school. You demand all your space around that locker, and guess what? Not going to go good. I got my locker all the way open, and I'm not moving it. Do they have lockers anymore? Okay. Coworkers, neighbors, the dog that comes over the line all the time. How are you going to deal with that? You've got to apply the wisdom of the cross to be a light in a dark world. And that's just one example. But in the flow-through of this book, Paul's going to talk about how the gospel can be applicable to our sexuality, to lawsuits, divorce and remarriage, personal liberties, spiritual gifts, worship. All of this is directly affected by the cross. How? Well, I can't do it all today. You're going to have to come back another time. But the reality is we have to learn the ways of Christ by looking at the cross and emulating the patterns we see and depending upon the Holy Spirit. And when we do this, if we're really following Christ, we're going to experience the real power of Christ. Verse 19 to 20, he kind of takes aim at the people in Corinth who are claiming to have all of this great wisdom and power and says, look, when I get there, I'm going to to show you where the real power is. 
See, these, these had demonstrated in their immaturity that they thought that they had the Holy Spirit, and they did have it, but they weren't applying the truths of the Spirit. They were arrogant, they were divisive, there was petty strife. They claimed to have great power from God to do wondrous works for God, but they didn't know how to live with other people. So Paul's coming to find out their power. That means exposing their foolishness of their wisdom. In verse 19, it says, And I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. I'm going to show you that it's coming from the world. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Should I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? Now, these people were full of hot air. Their egos were so inflated. They thought that just because they could do these fantastic works of speaking in tongues and doing all these healings or whatever, that they, could, they, could, that they were really something in the kingdom. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You're something in the kingdom when you start to look like Christ in His character, in His personality. Where the real power of the gospel is, it's not so much, well, it's in those powerful things. It's not so much in that, but it's in the power of God to give you the freedom to forgive, to transform and calling men and women out of darkness, and when they hear the gospel, when they hear the Word of God, their hearts turn. That's power, because it has nothing to do with you. That's everything to do with Christ. And so, verse 21, he leaves them with a question, how do you want me to come to you? Do you want me to come with a rod, or do you want me to come with a spirit of gentleness? Parents, have you ever asked your children, which they would prefer. You know, when they've done wrong, kind of give them the option for how you're going to deal with this issue. <laughs> I think the motive of parents is actually the same whether we have to use the rod or whether we have the spirit of, of, a, of a more conversational approach. The motive is the same. We really want the behavioral issues to change, because we know that in the end it will be so much better for those children if they learn now than have to have the pain of experience later in life. So, what Paul is saying here, which would you prefer me to come with? But I think what Paul is also saying here, that if earthly children or God's children dig their heels in with bitterness and divisiveness and strife, then there may be a time to come with the rod. And ultimately, it's to turn the heart. If those who refuse to follow in the footsteps of Jesus persist, the rod has to be applied. And ultimately what this does, if the spanking happens and the Spirit awakens, they may be rescued. Even in that, there is great power, and it ultimately doesn't come from us. 
It comes from God. And so what Paul is coming to an end conclusion here, he's saying, look, following Christ, imitating me, and ultimately through imitation of me, you're imitating Christ. It frees a person to experience the power of forgiveness and transformation that we desperately need. Paul said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Follow the crucified Christ. Don't follow the world. If we follow the crucified Christ, it will change our thinking and it will also change our behavior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for this word. I I pray that what was communicated by me, um, that which was intended by You would be heard, and that which is not intended by You would not be heard. That Your word would speak life and truth into hearts. We ask, Lord, that uh, it would move in people's hearts. May we be truly dependent upon You. May we be coming a, a praying people who are dependent upon You and You alone. In Your name we pray, amen.